0: Honolulu almost escaped the worst of the COVID epidemic.
1: As soon as 30,000 tourists stopped coming, Hawaii did very well on the coronavirus front.
0: Coming up, we hear how they're doing on tourist-dependent Oahu. You've seen those pictures of a whitewashed townscape overlooking the deep blue Aegean? They were taken on Santorini.
2: It's a place you have to see once in a lifetime, and I understand why so many people really want to get there.
0: We'll explore how the Greeks enjoy visiting the most popular of the Greek islands.
3: When I was growing up, Mykonos and Santorini were the places to go if you were in your late teens or early 20s.
4: And we delve into the reasons so many of us want to spend time near the water. We can get our blue minds on by a swimming pool, by an ocean. We can do it by a lake, river, in our own bathtubs. From blue Hawaii to Aegean blue and even tapping into
0: your blue mind. We'll be your island oasis in the hour ahead. It's Travel with Rick Steves. Hey, I'm Rick Steves. In my latest book, For the Love of Europe, I share highlights of a lifetime of exploring Europe, my favorite experiences, sights, and encounters in a 100 essays. Order your copy today at ricksteves.com. On today's Travel with Rick Steves, we'll explore why so many people prefer heading to the waterfront for a little R&R. And we'll hear how the dramatic beauty of Santorini has long made it the top favorite of visitors to the Greek Isles. I'll also share a few thoughts from my own lockdown perch here just north of Seattle. But first, Don Wallace is on the line from Honolulu. He tells us authorities there have put in a new set of restrictions because of a recent surge in COVID cases on Oahu, just as they were hoping they could start reopening its crucial tourism industry. Don's a contributing editor at Honolulu Magazine, and he's updated us on Hawaii tourism in, uh, in the past. And Don, you're, you're out there about, well, what, 2,500 miles away from anywhere else in the middle of the Pacific. Hawaii depends so much on tourism, and I, I would imagine it's been quite a stressful time with uh, the coronavirus continuing to spread. What's it like in Hawaii right now?
1: Well, Hawaii started out, as soon as 30,000 tourists stopped coming, Hawaii did very well on the coronavirus front. We were the lowest in the nation for states. Now, we've had a spike starting uh, with the 4th of July, and in August, it it began to get up to 200 cases a day. Hmm. And I know that doesn't sound like much, but on an island um, where you don't have that many hospital facilities, Mm -hmm. it meant we had to do a banning of parks, beaches, hiking trails, and gatherings over 10.
0: Mm -hmm. So is the um, response... And the impact of the coronavirus different from different islands?
1: Yeah, Oahu gets most of it. In fact, it's almost minuscule on Maui, Big Island, Lanai, Molokai. Those islands, the people can pretty much go as they please. They do wear masks. Mm -hmm. They're allowed to fly into Oahu without a quarantine. But people from Oahu can't fly there without a quarantine.
0: Mm Mm-hmm. What about people in the tourism industry? Are they impatient, or are they realizing that haste makes waste when it comes to uh, getting over this so they can start making money again?:
1: It's a very interesting case. People are very concerned. There's no voice irresponsibly pushing for a wide opener wide opening deal like Texas did, for instance. Mm-hmm. And I think that's because the workers, sixty, seventy percent of them are you know uh, minimum wage workers. they don't have good health plans. They carry uh, the burden of this. And the other part is the tourists have stopped coming.
0: Can Americans from the mainland fly into Hawaii and have a vacation if they want to?
1: Yeah, you can come. um, We get about 3,000 visitors a day. And I think the hitch there is you do a 14-day quarantine, and you check into your hotel, and you can't leave your hotel room.
0: Okay, so the impact on tourism would be you're probably wandering around the beaches thinking this is like it was back in the old days.
1: Right. We are very much in 1930s Hawaii. You know, Waikiki is a ghost town, and that's not entirely a bad thing. Um, We're getting a taste of old Hawaii. Empty beaches, very clean water, clean Mm -hmm. air. You feel like Bing Crosby hanging out with the Beach Boys, the old school Beach Boys. And if you do go out, to dinner, for instance, you may have the restaurant to yourself, just one or two people. Wow. And that's kind of magic.
0: So that's interesting. I mean, of course, you've lost the revenue, but you've regained your beaches as far as the locals go. Uh, There was something in the news, and I think you wrote about it, about gun-toting extremists who are wearing Hawaii shirts. Uh, It doesn't seem like the aloha spirit to me. What's the story there? That
1: really bothered people when suddenly, up in the news, uh, there was one of these... um, gun group extremists started showing up at the Black Lives Matter protests and other places. And so they wore Aloha shirts to kind of create a sort of scary dissonance. And people here reacted really strongly. The Hawaiian shirt is about Aloha, and Aloha is is welcoming, it's inclusive. And it's actually um, something I wrote an article about, how Hawaiian shirts fight extremism in uh, Honolulu magazine. It's a love story about two sisters from Portland who came to Hawaii in 1920. He married South Asian immigrants and helped create the Aloha shirt industry.
0: It's a beautiful, beautiful story, and it's that Aloha spirit, that sort of love, that easygoingness, that caring for others. Um <laughs> what a what a dissonance by these what are they called? Boogaloo what is
5: Boogaloo it? Boogaloo
0: boys. Boogaloo boys. Okay. Well I hope you can yeah. get a handle on that and we can read about that in your article. And then very quickly, what's open now if you are in Hawaii? Museums, clubs, restaurants, uh,
1: what's We right now the the Bishop Museum and Halu Museum? after a limited reopening, had to close again. We hope to get them back up in a couple of weeks. Um, In every neighborhood, there are little outdoor cafes and restaurants. They've shifted to putting cafe tables out on the sidewalks and even the streets in some cases. Mm -hmm. So Manoa, Makiki, Kaimuki, Kailua, Kaka'ako.
0: And, you know, Um, thankfully, Hawaii is a very outdoor culture, so uh, eating outdoors is uh, no big concession. So that lends itself to social distancing, Don, it's so great to have you on. We'll like to talk again soon. I hope everything goes well with Hawaii and tourism and and your work there. Uh, Don Wallace is a contributing editor at Honolulu Magazine, and he's written The French House about buying a fixer-upper on the island of Brittany, and he's written articles about what's going on in Hawaii these days. We have a link to his article about the real story of the Aloha shirts at ricksteves.com slash radio. Don, best wishes and aloha.
1: Aloha, Rick. May the spirit
0: be with you. We're already several months into this pandemic lockdown, and I've come to realize something. The essence of traveling doesn't require a passport or a plane ticket. A good traveler can take a trip and never leave his or her hometown. At least, that's been my mantra during this pandemic. Hi, I'm Rick Steves. For the last 30 years, I've spent four months in Europe each year, writing guidebooks, producing travel TV, and leading bus tours. Since mid-March, I've been locked down. I've slept in the same bed. I've eaten dinner at the same table with the same person. A weekly venture to the supermarket? That's my big excursion. There's nothing in my pockets, nothing on my calendar. The only things I'm wearing out are my favorite slippers. I'm home for my first Seattle summer since 1980. Being homebound, I've tried to apply a traveler's perspective to the current crisis. Now that I'm focusing my wanderlust on my own hometown, I'm able to find the equivalent of sightseeing highlights just down the street. Cultural eurekas in my own neighborhood that I'd never before appreciated. Before the pandemic, I didn't think to savor the little nearby joys in the same way that I do while I'm abroad to be honest I ignored them now I'm no longer blind to local treasures treasures right here in Edmonds the evocative tone of the fairy's horn the majesty of my hometown sunsets stuck here at home I've been pondering a big question lately why do I travel reviewing my own approach to travel at first it was the bucket list vacation you know having fun checking iconic sites off my list Then, it was being inspired by the sights, by better understanding them. For example, looking into the eyes of Michelangelo's David and seeing the spirit of European civilization eyeing the bully of medieval darkness, believing he could conquer it and then with confidence step boldly into the modern age, the Renaissance, humanism. And finally, I traveled to get out of my comfort zone to find out who I am in the vast scheme of things, and then to fly home with the very best souvenir, a broader perspective. I didn't have an agenda, but that's the natural evolution I've enjoyed on the road over all these decades, growing, or you could say maturing, from tourist to traveler to pilgrim. During this pandemic, I'm making a point to employ my appetite for a travel fund right here. I'm savoring new-to-me experiences at home, getting comfortable with my first electric drill, dancing to a Rolling Stones concert on TV, playing my piano in the dark. While I may be well-traveled, in many ways, I'm quite a bumpkin. I'm well-versed in Italian cuisine, yet lost, absolutely lost, in my own kitchen. I've never actually cooked until this year, literally never made pasta, never used olive oil, never cared that there are different kinds of potatoes. Now, like someone experiencing the delights of Europe for their first time, I thrill at the sensation of a knife cutting through a crisp onion. While for the time being we can't visit great museums, cathedrals, or monuments, we can be inspired by books, movies, lectures, and conversations. We can explore our backyards as if on the road. Lately, I've read the historic plaques in my own hometown. I've wandered through our little cemetery, and I've admired the church steeple, even if it's just a painted cross mounted on hardware store dowels. I'm also dusting off old passions. I sifted through the brittle postcards that I sent home from my earliest backpacking trips, and I oiled up my old trumpet, which had sat in the darkness of its case since I was in college. With each sunset these days, I play taps from my deck. The neighbors come out, whoop and clap, and we're reminded as the sun dips out of sight that we are in this together and that we're blessed with our health, with a beautiful environment, and with each other. This crisis has made me aware of things I'd come to take for granted. For my entire life, spending three months a year in Europe has been routine. Now, grounded at home, I see clearly how the very act of jetting around the world is a privilege. And reflecting on the suffering this pandemic is causing both near and far, I'm also mindful of how I'm privileged. Privileged to be able to work from home for a steady paycheck compared to underpaid essential workers, those who've lost jobs, and families who are struggling. Travel teaches us that there's more to life than increasing its speed. And this quarantine has been therapy for a workaholic like me. Perhaps the pandemic is the universe's way of telling us all to just slow down. And, like travel, this crisis is reminding us of how we need each other. While I've always understood intellectually the importance of the people who protect us, suddenly I look differently at nurses, bus drivers, and grocery clerks. I'm more thankful for the man who cleans my office in the wee hours so I can safely go to work. While the future is uncertain, approaching the world as a traveler, even while locked down, can make us less afraid. I'm confident that, sooner or later, we'll be planning trips and packing our bags again. In the meantime, I'll be patient, and I'll continue to embrace life with the traveler's spirit right here at home. On the road, I find myself saying, life is good. I say it a lot. And even while homebound during a pandemic, I find there's still plenty to be thankful for and many reasons to strive for a world where everyone can say life is good. So let me wish you happy travels, even if we're all just staying home for a while. You can reach us at 877-333-7425 or by email at radio at ricksteves.com. Our next stop is the Greek island of Santorini as we take time to enjoy the view on Travel with Rick Steves. The Greek prime minister flew to Santorini in June to announce that the country's tourism was reopening, at least starting for Greeks visiting from the mainland to enjoy the island's famous sunsets and dramatic scenery. Before the global shutdown, Santorini was the most popular Greek island with tourists. Lots of tourists. Cruise ship passengers crowded in by the thousands every day. But by shutting itself off to even other Greeks for a few months, Santorini was able to catch its breath and hold off the epidemic. They completed a new highway and airport terminal as the island's tourism industry anticipates a more robust season eventually. Greek guides Johanna Papakosta, Filippos Kanakaris, and Maria Sulas join us now with advice for planning your time on Santorini, whether or not you get a visit before the crowds return.
6: Welcome. Thank, Thank you. you. Hi.
0: Maria, can you just um, introduce yourself and, and where you're from in Greece?
6: Hi. Uh, my name is Maria and I'm from uh, Athens, in mm-hmm. Greece. Obviously not a native, but I've lived there for about 38 years. Lots of experience on Santorini, taking groups by foot, and also on cruises as well, so one of the most important things about visiting Santorini is to really plan your time so that you can avoid the crowds, see what it is you want to see and get the best experience possible. And we'll talk about avoiding the crowds in a moment. Philippos, where do you live in Guide?
3: I live and Guide in Athens, mm-hmm. but I've traveled many times to Santorini with groups and also on my own because when I was growing up, Mykonos and Santorini were the places to go if you were in your late teens or early 20s. Is that right? So,
0: Because yeah. uh, uh, you think it's just mostly tourists. But Greeks dream about going to Santorini as well.
3: Absolutely. And Santorini for me was the first place that I went on holidays with my friends. That was back in the 1990s. It was starting to get really, really important as a place. Uh, but for us, it was something mind-blowing as well. It wasn't just for the tourists.
0: And Iona. Where are you
2: from? I'm from Patra, a city on the Peloponnese, on the north coast of the Peloponnese. And growing up, my father, who had been to Santorini, was telling me that photos I see in my school books or TV, they don't do justice. Mm. So when I went there for the first time, it was magical. It's a place you have to see once in a lifetime. And I understand why so many people really want to get there.
0: And my last time I was there I was coming in on a cruise ship and they wake you up in the morning so you can see the caldera approaching and you come into this bay and you're surrounded by the lip of a of a
2: volcano. Yes, the caldera is basically what's left after the big eruption of a volcano in the early sixteen hundreds BC. Basically what happened was that the volcano erupted, the pyroclastic waves they covered the city that existed on the island. And then the side walls of the caldera collapsed, leaving tons and tons and thousands and tons of water to come into, actually, the crater of the volcano. And this is what created this amazing geological phenomenon.
0: What's left of a volcano filled right. with
2: water. Totally impressed. And that Absolutely happened in
0: 1600 impressive. or so before Christ. Six. Yes. So 3,500 years ago, we have this amazing explosion. And there was a civilization on the island when the volcano blew. Uh, Philippos, tell us about that.
3: This is a civilization which is contemporary to the Minoan civilization in Crete. Mm. We assume that based on the murals we found on the city, because there is an archaeological site on the island, it's uh, exquisite. It's called Akrotiri. Uh Uh-huh. And uh, it has a bioclimatic roof, which is amazing for those wanting to visit during the summer.
0: It has a what kind of roof?
3: A bioclimatic roof. What does that mean? uh, It means that the temperatures is steady throughout the year. So it's just hot all the time. (laughs) (laughs) No, I would say it's uh, um, in the high 70s, Uh uh, low 80s. So it makes it very, very comfortable to visit. And you have the chance to to walk around the city, the walls, and see the three- and four-story-high buildings that used to exist back then.
0: Well, Maria, when you take a group to Akrotiri, mm-hmm. the civilization that was destroyed with the eruption of Santorini 1,600 years before Christ, they've excavated it. What do you enjoy most showing your groups to let them know about the sophistication of that civilization well, so long ago?
6: This is the thing. that It's just the sheer sophistication. These were a highly advanced civilization. We're talking about roads, as Filippo said. You've got three-story houses. You have marketplaces, areas where there was obviously entertainment going on. Absolutely beautiful. So, and the way that the site is designed enables you to sort of Walk over it mm-hmm. so you can look down. So you have elevated the, sidewalks. Elevated walkways so over the, the side You
0: want the access, but you don't want to walk on the precious Right. Uh, on, dig. Exactly.
6: It's beautifully done. Lots of information. Yeah. It's usually local guides there. And this goes well. all
0: the way back to the time of the Minoans. And you yeah. can see the Minoan civilization ruins when you go to Crete. 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 Yeah. yeah. So yeah. you have the Palace of Gnosis. But a lot of people don't realize at the same time we have Akrotiri, Akrotiri. on Santorini. It's a Greek guide to the most popular island in the Aegean on Travel with Rick Steves. We're getting insider travel tips for Santorini for whenever it returns to its pre-COVID era popularity. Our guides are Joanna Papacosta, who specializes in tours of Olympia from her home base in Patras. Filippos Kanakaris also directs a small theater troupe in Athens, where Maria Sulis is also based. Ioana, I was just hearing Maria talk about a and walking above, and I remember there was even an indication that they enjoyed wine way back then.
2: Absolutely. Mm -hmm. It was one of the main products of the island. They exported their wine all around the Mediterranean Sea, and archaeologists have found the biggest percent of prototypes of weights on the island, relatively speaking, comparing to the other islands of the Mediterranean, which shows that they held the commerce on their hands, the people of that island in particular. And wine was one of the main products, as it is nowadays.
0: I think the the Santorini civilization, it goes from almost 3000 BC till about 1500-1600 BC. Exactly. So it's about the same stretch as the pyramids and the pharaohs. Exactly. Uh, the oldest uh, pyramid, about that same time when Akrotiri was being...
2: The archaeological site of Akrotiri that somebody can visit today is actually built on the ruins of the previous town that used to be in the area, which was destroyed by earthquakes, as mm. it is a volcanic island and earthquakes I mean, were You know,
0: in... a, a lot of things change, but the sunshine and the grapes of Santorini, I think, are always there, and it's so sunny and so hot. And what does that mean for the grapes for the wine today on Santorini?
2: Well, the problem there is that, first of all, it's always very windy, mm-hmm. and there's a not enough island on the water. So the locals, they came up with this amazing, very wise way to grow the vines Uh so they cannot be affected by the climate. So you drive around the island and you look around you, you expect to see grapes the way we have them in mind all around the world. And you realize the locals, instead of growing their grapes high as bushes, they weave them like baskets, mm-hmm. very low on the ground. So the grapes grow in those baskets, which so, are actually... So the, black,
0: the, the hard wood of a grapevine is actually woven into like a wicker basket.
2: Exactly.
0: And the grapes are sheltered inside.
2: Exactly. And at the same time, at night, they get all the moisture that they can from the ground.
0: So the dew comes, no matter how, to, how hot it was in the day, you have dew at night, and it's collected in there. So, Maria, all of this sun, all of this heritage, what's the characteristic of a Santorini wine?
6: Well, because it's a volcanic island, the amount of mineral content in the soil gives the wine this absolutely beautiful, earthy flavor. Mm-hmm. And on the island, uh, they also produce a very sweet wine. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's almost like a fortified wine, really. So
0: you've got the volcanic soil, so you've got the intense sunshine. The intense sunshine, and you have that yeah. almost fortified wine.
6: Absolutely. Some of the most
0: beautiful wine in the world. Philippos, when people go to Santorini, they're thinking of beaches. And because it was a volcano, you have these beautiful black sand beaches. Mm -hmm. What are the options for people that want a little time on the beach off of the cruise ship?
3: Well, there's two black sand beaches. One is Mm -hmm. called Perisa, that's Mm B-E-R-R-I-S-A. And the other one is called Perivolos, which is B-E-R-I-V-O-L-O-S. Okay. So you choose And that's why um, the best place to be staying at, to be spending the night in Santorini is the capital of the island. That's Fira, Uh F-I-R-A. Because from there, you can take the public transport buses. They're brand new. They're Uh not expensive. You can take the bus, be there in 20 minutes and spend the whole day. And And there's
0: restaurants all lining the coast. Restaurants, places to get
3: changed, uh, Mm -hmm. sunbeds, depending on what you want to do. And on top of that, we need, I think, to to tell people if they go swimming at the Parisa or Perivolous, the two black sand beaches, Mm -hmm. they should have their flip-flops or their switch. Oh, and uh, the black sand beaches. Yeah, because when it's sunny... You yeah. have to bring them all the way to the water and yeah. then take them off or else you start dancing. <laughs> <laughs> See people dancing on the beach, they're not happy. Their feet are burning. Exactly. Joanna. when you're a cruiser, I mean,
0: there's two ways to go to Santorini. People go on a cruise ship or without. And every day the harbor is filled, with, or not filled, but there's several cruise ships there, and that means sometimes thousands of people Exactly. On the it can mainland. be
2: 12,000 people in one morning.
0: When you come in with a cruise ship, you have two options. You can take an organized excursion or you can just take the shuttle in. And my experience was the shuttle just goes to the old port and then you can take the The funicular, the cable car car to the top or you can take a donkey, which I think is, uh, wouldn't recommend that. No, but you can just zip up to the top in the cable car and you're on your own or you can go with your tender to the new port and a bus is waiting for you and you get a three-hour connecting all the sites and you see the little woven basket uh, vines.
6: And yes, you...
2: driving around the island, you get to see both sides of the island, the side yeah. that faces Caldera and the other side, which is smoother and you have the east views of the island. But what we need to stress is that, especially if people are willing to get off the cruise ship and get to Santorini, to the t- main town, the old port on their own, they need to plan ahead because the queues are long. Sometimes on the way back when you need to take the cable car to the cruise ship, there might be a one-and-a-half-hour-long queue.
0: Just to get the gondola back down. In fact, if it's an hour-long queue, you could walk down that path in 20 minutes.
2: Yes, but sometimes you know, in long people walk. are not... Yeah.
0: yeah, but if you're hardy... <laughs> oh, yeah, absolutely. Waiting, if, if, if it's much faster. If you're a good hiker, it looks like a long way, but I was frustrated by the long line. You can imagine everybody going back to the ships. And the
2: view is very rewarding. Anyway. So it's
0: a wonderful walk. It's downhill. It's a little exercise, but... Don't wait in that line for an hour Mm -hmm. if you can just romp on down in 20 minutes. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Filippos, Maria, and Ioana. We're talking about Santorini. Our email address is radio at ricksteves.com, and Lori from Long Beach in California emailed us, and she writes, we'll be on a cruise to Santorini and want to avoid the ship's excursions if possible. What's the best way to see the best of Santorini without a cruise excursion? And uh, we want to stay late on the island. Well, if you take a cruise ship, you're likely not going to stay late on the island. And one of the most romantic things about Santorini is seeing the sunset from the top of the caldera. So you won't get that, except for the rare cruise ship that does stay in the evening. So you'll be out of there by the time the romantic sunset happens. But you do have that encouragement to take the excursions. Philippos, how realistic is it to do Santorini without the excursion from the cruise ship?
3: Well, if I were to do it on my own as a passenger, as a traveler of the cruise boat, I would hire a local agency. And I would go to the new port, Mm -hmm. so I would use the tickets that they provide you in order to go to the new port. And I would hire a vehicle, because if you use an agency, they will provide you with a guide of your own.
0: And if you're a couple, make friends with another couple, four people, share the private tour with the private van... And you would spend no more than four people getting onto a 50-seat bus Mm -hmm. to do the traditional thing from the cruise ship. That's a very good idea, I would say. It's so fun to talk about Santorini because it's such a famous place in people's travel dreams, and there's so many ways you can do it better. I'd like to just finish with a favorite experience on Santorini that you might want to be sure to have, and we'll start with Maria.
6: As you mentioned, the uh, Santorini sunset is a must for everybody. And the most popular place to go to see the sunset is Ia. Now, unfortunately, come the summer months and the high season... Ia at sunset is absolutely crowded. So Mm -hmm. my recommendation, if you want to see the best sunset on Santorini, is get yourselves onto one of the little catamarans. Hmm. And you can sail. It's usually the afternoon, a couple of hours you're on there. You can sail to the beach. There's usually a little bit of food, barbecue on board. And then it's just before sunset. They sail on the Caldera, obviously, underneath Ia. And the sunset is quite spectacular. It's a sunset catamaran. It's a sunset catamaran.
0: Nice. Filippos, what is one experience we should all have when we're on Santorini?
3: Well, the most beautiful experience is to do the hike from Fira, which is the capital of the island, Mm -hmm. and to go all the way to Ia, or the other way around. So the two major towns. Exactly. What is beautiful about it is that you're constantly having on your side, on one side, the caldera. The views are spectacular. Mm -hmm. It's around three and a half hours.
0: So when you talk about the views from the caldera, you're on the top of a cliff, really. And, and so you've look. got the, the island spreading out to your right and on your left you've got this dramatic drop-off and then this, the Aegean Sea and the islands and the and the ships all into the distance and you're walking along the lip of that
3: cliff. Yeah, which makes it exquisite. And a lot of times when I do this hike because I've done it with groups and on my own, I tend to grab a bit of wine uh-huh. and there's a church right before the town of Fira. You can make uh-huh. a stop there at the courtyard of the church and yeah. maybe a few snacks and you can enjoy the last part of the sunset.
0: Nice. And one thing that you might see there are Asian brides.
3: Many Asian brides. <laughs> Tell me about that. I think this is the most popular trend in China, in Japan. A lot of brides, they come, they take their photos in Santorini, and then they have their wedding one or two years later. So while you're walking there, and there's a microclimate and wind, you know, because the agency has wind, you see all these veils flying, and at some point you cannot see the sky. It's just a giant veil covering everyone, you know. I once had uh, a veil coming into my face and I had a group behind me and I felt like I was the blind oracle tirasius. <laughs> <laughs> the oracle with an Asian bridal veil on your face. Yeah, yeah. It was amazing.
0: <laughs> I understand and, and the bride and the groom have not been married yet. No, no, no. Is, is, it, is it just the bride or the bride and the groom? That both, can, of them, both, both of them. Both of
3: them. They have like separate photos but they have photos <laughs> together and sometimes their wedding is one or two years
0: later. And there's people on Santorini who make their living
3: organizing these photo mm, shoots. Absolutely. And they organize not only photo shoots, but they also organize a lot of wedding receptions if that wedding is taking place on the island. It's a big business. Let's hope they get along for the next year so they didn't waste all of that money.
0: (laughs) It would be a huge (laughs) irony. But it's a romantic spot. I can understand why people want their wedding portrait there.
3: It is. And if you know what to avoid on this island, which is basically going to be uh, between the times, I would say, of 11.30 in the morning all the way to 5.00. PM, mm-hmm. Then uh, you, you can find your spots. Mm. And uh, yes, you really yes. can. Ioana, what would you recommend for
0: the very best?
2: One of my favorite spots on the island is uh, the town which is uh, right next to Fira and it's called Imerovigli, huh. which means the day watch spot. Right. So the Venetians, there's a rock actually that sticks out next to this village called mm-hmm. Skaros, and the Venetians built their watchtower over there which collapsed by a big earthquake and we don't have it any longer. But you can imagine that as they were interested in the maritime ways and they wanted to be able to control the passageways, this is a fantastic spot and it has great views of the caldera.
0: Imerovili. That's the name of the town. Okay. One thing characteristic about Santorini is the beautiful whitewashed houses, and they're, like, built right into that cliff. I mean, originally they are built into the cliff not for tourism, but today they're used as romantic hotels. What's the story about that architecture?
2: Basically, we need to let people know that that was not always the favorite part of the island for the nobles. The ship owners, the landowners of the island, they had their big mansions facing the eastern side of the island, which is not, the landscape is not so dramatic. Right. So the poor people of the island, they needed places to live. And they started digging caves on the side of the rock facing the caldera with the material that they were digging out. They were building the facade of their cave homes, which are now, if you own one of those, you're a very rich person.
3: So
0: that's kind of ironic. The poorest land is now the most amazing little hotels. Exactly. And if you use one of those hotels, that means you're going to be on the island without all the cruise crowds. So early in the morning and late in the afternoon and the evening, Santorini has a different feel than during the day when you have thousands of tourists coming in from the cruise ships. My favorite moment on Santorini, if I'm on a cruise ship, I'm nervous, I don't want to miss the last tender back to the ship. So I go back down on the cable car or hike down the zigzag path to the little tiny old port, and everybody jumps on their tender to go back to their ship. But I get a glass of ouzo or a nice glass of Greek wine, and I sit at the taverna on the little old port and my job is to be the last person out of 3,000 people on my cruise ship. (laughs) Now, when they say the last tender is 5.30, the last tender is 5.30. You don't need to go at 5 o'clock. People are nervous, and they do, right? And they know who's on shore. And when I swipe my card, it says I'm number (laughs) 2,999. That gave me a beautiful half an hour, all alone on the taverna, enjoying that last glass of wine on Santorini, and I'm just 10 or 15 steps away from my tender, I don't need to be nervous, but I'm enjoying every minute on that beautiful island. Johanna, Filipos, Maria, Eferestro.
6: Para calo.
3: Para Thank you.
0: Whether it's from a vacation on a resort island or just taking a walk down by the water, Wallace J. Nichols knows there's a scientific reason we find being near the water therapeutic. He tells us how we can get our blue mind on, even if we're nowhere near a beach. That's next on Travel with Rick Steves. We're at 877 rick for some reason, my gut tells me that I need to live near the water to be happy. Dr. Wallace J. Nichols is a research associate at the California Academy of Sciences, and he knows why. Advances in neuroscientific research are offering new explanations for age-old beliefs about the impact on humans of proximity to water. We talked to Jay about this a while back from his home base in Santa Cruz, California. Given the emotional assault you've probably been feeling this year, I thought we could all benefit from hearing again just how being around water can reduce stress and change the way we think. His book is called Blue Mind. Jay, thanks for joining us on Travel with Rick Steves. Thanks for having me. Tell us about this whole concept of blue mind and and the importance of water for our well-being.
4: It is a very intuitive idea that water makes us feel good, water makes us happy, helps us relax, And, and I guess you could say that I'm Captain Obvious in writing this book. But I wanted to go deeper, and I wanted to ask about the physiology and about the biology and the evolutionary theory behind that feeling. And when I started digging in, I found that A, this book hadn't been written before, and B, these very simple questions really hadn't been asked and struggled with before. So it began this five-year journey into our blue minds, if you will, and trying to figure this out. and. That brought me face-to-face with big wave surfers and people with the last name Cousteau, and it brought me into the labs of neuroscientists and evolutionary biologists and psychologists learning about our brains on water. Now, you talk about red mind versus blue mind,
0: and you can kind of imagine red mind is our intense, on-the-ball, eager, aggressive mindset, and blue mind sort of counters that. Uh, How does that relate to water, and and how do you define red mind and blue mind?
4: Red mind is the state that we find ourselves in a lot of the time these days, and it's the kind of always-on, always-connected, busy, active, listening, processing mode of of just our modern lives. Mm -hmm. And it's a good thing. You know, red mind's not bad, but if you live a life that's entirely red mind, eventually things are going to fall apart. You're literally on the cellular level. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's just, it stresses us out. And, and you're talking get about sick. fall apart
0: neurologically and biologically. I mean, there's actual physiological problems with not having blue mind in your approach to life.
4: The psychologists and neuroscientists call it toxic stress. And that's where oh. you've just got too much stress for too long that you, you literally become ill. Your body system stops working properly. And one of the solutions to that situation is, is what I call blue mind is just disconnecting, unplugging mm-hmm. and moving towards a big body of water, getting in it if the conditions are right and really just letting your, your mind wander, letting your heart rate slow and your breathing rate slow down. Mm-hmm. And you literally switch to a different brain network, a yeah. different mode. In your book, you write, uh, being with water is the fastest way to hit the reset button.
0: And, and physiologically, you're, you're, that's exactly what's happening. You're, you're breaking out of that rat race and, and resetting.
4: That's right. And it, it really is a good metaphor, the, the big blue reset button. Yeah. And I, <laughs> I experience it personally, and I'm sure travelers of all shapes and sizes, yeah. uh, including my kids, experience it as often as possible. Jay, is blue mind your term, or is that an accepted term in this field? Well, that's the term I came up with to describe this mildly meditative, relaxed state of mind. Yes.
0: Now, if you live in a landlocked concrete world, are you saying when you go on vacation, it's it's healthy for you to choose a vacation place that has water?
4: Each of us will probably answer that question differently. I I talk to people and they say, well, I'm not really an ocean person. I'm more of a mountain person. And my answer to them is, yeah, but don't you love those mountains more if there's a lake or a river? or even just a little creek up there? And their answer is usually yes. So we can get our blue minds on uh, by a swimming pool in our own bathtubs. We can do it by an ocean. We can do it by a lake, a river, or even a pond. And whatever it is that works for you is what I would recommend. You
0: know, there's a lot of ways that people probably without even having any recognition of the whole blue mind concept or the importance of water, they just gravitate to water. You have a A little a plug-in fountain uh, in your garden or you have a koi pond or you have a hot tub or you have even a soundtrack can a soundtrack of of the ocean do the same sort of uh, beneficial
4: effect yeah people play water sounds whether it's rain or a running creek or the sound of the surf to help relax help go to sleep even and it's the number one downloaded sleep aid in terms of these these sound apps so yeah, you can create blue mind without having any actual water around and art is even very useful. A painting that is um, of a place you love or by an artist you admire, a photograph mm. on the wall, a poster of a, of a whale or a dolphin or whatever it is that mm-hmm. puts you in that state of mind is maybe activates your nostalgia, your set of, you know, highly emotional memories. Uh, this is a travel show uh you 're an expert in the value of water why don 't you be our water vacation
0: counselor for you, what are the best water sites what 's a great place for you and and your need for being near water to go?
4: Well, the first one that comes to mind is is a secret beach that i can 't tell you about so i, I won 't go there i 'll just skip over that, but it 's not too far from my house and And I guess maybe that 's to say you know that spot that you can get to. Uh, any day of the week or any weekend. That okay, everybody, is... a beach in Santa Cruz. Go to Santa
0: Cruz yeah, and right. find a little
4: beach and look for the man <laughs> who wrote
0: Blue Mind, okay?
4: I'll see you there. Yeah. But I spent a lot of time traveling in Mexico, in Baja, California, mm. and that's an interesting place because it's got the the desert and the lack of water juxtaposed mm-hmm. with a beautiful ocean. Mm. And there are lots of solitary beaches and fishing communities that I spend time in uh, traveling in, in northwestern Mexico. And I find that to be one of the great places. I'm lucky with my work. I get to go to be all alone in
0: front of the Mona Lisa in the Louvre. I can go to the top of this mountain or the top of this skyscraper or tower just because it's my work. And if I think of the most joyful moment, it's just me and the sound of water sloshing around my head as I'm snorkeling and looking through goggles at little fish in any ocean beach with nice water life. I become lost in that wonderful world, and I think my whole body is is recharging. It's resetting in a way that I, I didn't even put my finger on until this conversation, but that is the experience that brings me so much joy, and it's that sloshing with the world of water. Me too. <laughs> <laughs> That's it's pretty cool. Wallace Jane Nichols has collected his research on how being near, in, on, or even underwater can make you happier, healthier, more connected, and better at what you do. It's in his best-selling book, Blue Mind. Jay is a co founder of the youth advocacy group Ocean Revolution and a senior fellow with the Middlebury Institute Center for the Blue Economy. His website is wallacejnichols.org. Bill joins us on the phone from Santa Clara, California at 877
5: 333 7425. Hey, Bill. Hi. I need water therapy. I grew up in Massachusetts Bay and uh, now I'm retired and I live in Silicon Valley which is, as you might get from the name, is another wet place. And I really ache for the, the ocean, but I'm six miles away and I don't drive. I, I haven't yet gone there. I've retired, but I haven't yet gone to the ocean here. And uh, that's very strange for me. who was could get on my bicycle when I was a kid and just ride about a mile, and I'd be right at the ocean side. Uh, I need water therapy.
0: Why don't you go to the ocean? It's just six miles away.
5: Uh, I don't drive. Oh, okay. And there's no bus.
0: Oh. I'll come pick you up, and I'll take you <laughs> to that beach that I you, really? I... you need a koi pot. Bill, it is interesting that you have this strong sense that you need water. It's oh, not, I do. It's not just you need something. I mean, I can imagine somebody thinks, oh, I need something. It's just I'm missing something. But you know what you're missing. You're missing water.
5: California's in extreme drought conditions, and where I live is very, very dry. Yeah. And so that just adds to my uh, need with uh, external validation is that it's it's not just in my mind... It's true. Everybody here is desperate for water.
0: Now, Jay, it seems like a sorry excuse for a seashore, but if you are, for whatever reason, landlocked, what can you do in your own domestic environment uh, that that would make a difference? What would you do for water
4: therapy? Well, you know, if you have a bathtub, use it. I would say in in the drought conditions we have in California, perhaps share your bath, uh, which is a fun thing to do. Half full
5: baths here now. -hmm. Yeah,
4: half full baths, and uh, I drop some sea salt in it. Uh, Dim the lights, put on your your favorite watery music or water soundtrack, and just chill. I mean, that's probably a a really easy thing to do.
0: Maybe everybody else has probably discovered this already, but I just found in Spotify, you know, you can get any soundtrack you want, and you've got all sorts of uh, sea sounds and sounds of nature. You could easily go there and find a a, a water soundtrack.
4: Yeah, if you look... uh, Ocean sounds on YouTube—you'll get a, you know, even twelve hours of nonstop natural ocean sounds that will just play with a with an ocean video going. So, obviously, I I don't believe that that's a a pure replacement for mm-hmm. the ocean itself. But it helps. But if it helps, certainly. I'd never
5: have thought of that. Thank you,
4: Bill. Thanks for your call.
0: And uh, Catherine's on the line in Cambridge, Ontario.
7: Yeah, I had a couple of questions. Um, I was wondering if. Dr. Nichols, your research uncovered a difference between salt and freshwater on human well-being?
4: Yeah, so you're going to find a difference between an experience with a river or a lake and the ocean because of the salt. You're also going to find a difference um, because of the vastness and you know, what psychologists refer to as the awe factor. Mm. So when you're, when you're standing at, a, at an ocean, which tends to be salty, the massive size of it and perhaps the sunrise or the sunset over the water can drive you to experience a, a feeling of awe that's quite profound and quite wondrous. Not to say that lakes and rivers don't also do that, but there's a, a scale difference that comes into play. You know, Jay, I would I would imagine a walk on the beach has the same awe factor. A walk on a lake beach
0: would be nice, but a walk on an ocean beach would probably be a uh, more awesome.
4: Yeah, there's a you know there's a continuum, but also you know the the content of the ocean having salt and other minerals dissolved in it is, is a factor. So the buoyancy is a factor. So your your experience of floating or swimming in the ocean is going to be vastly different than the one in, in freshwater. And then you're going to obviously carry that salt residue on your skin. And that salt has an antiseptic quality to it as well. So there are, are other beneficial factors that come from swimming in, in the salt water. And all of this depends on the water in fact being healthy. And not polluted. Catherine,
0: listening to our conversation, does that resonate with your personal, just sort of gut feelings about the importance of
7: water? Yes, it does. Uh, I've I studied biology in school, and I spent the last eight months doing a, a research project in aquatic ecology. So I'm full aware of the important implications of the, how we need to conserve our water and everything like that. But the reason that I brought up the uh, the difference between salt and fresh water is, um, as you mentioned, I'm from Cambridge, Ontario, which is about for your listeners that don't know, one hour west of Toronto. Mm -hmm. Um, So I'm within about a two-hour driving distance of three of the Great Lakes. Those, I think, that anybody who's ever been to the Great Lakes, people could agree that they're extremely vast, and you can't exactly see the other side or anything. So I thought that it might have a similar sort of psychological effect as the ocean, aside from the salt, which I do agree that does play a factor, the smell of the ocean is just enough to Mm -hmm. ease all of your tensions.
0: (laughs) I love that. The smell of low tide and the sound of the surf. It's just beautiful. Catherine, thanks for your call.
7: Thank you so much. Okay, bye now. Bye.
0: This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Wallace J. Nichols, and uh, Jay has written a book called Blue Mind, talking about the importance of water, being near water, being in water or on water for our well-being.
4: Speaking of therapy, you write about surf therapy. What is that? There are a number of organizations, such as uh, this group called Operation Surf, that work with a range of people who are dealing with different kinds of stress or injuries or diseases or issues that limit their ability to function in, in society. And what Operation Surf does is takes those people, equips them correctly, and gets them out on the water On some surfboards with expert instructors to spend the day or a number of days learning to surf and, and sometimes having really the time of their lives. Actually
0: surfing. I I would have thought they would just be frolicking in the, in the surf, having the waves beat on them, but it's actually getting on a surfboard and surfing.
4: Absolutely. And it's Mm. amazing to see that, you know, these, these expert instructors at Operation Surf will surf on the same board with their students. So Mm. some of the men and women that they surf with are missing arms or legs. Mm. Are unable to walk mm. because of a, of a disease or an illness, or are, are dealing with other life circumstances that have gotten them really stressed out, and so they just have this incredible experience on I these just waves. Think all
0: your pistons would just be going like mad. Your endorphins would just be
4: giddy. It's life changing, yeah. and for many of their students, they after they've spent some time surfing, they say, "I, I see my life differently." Yeah. I want to live, I want to live now, in a different way. Jay,
0: this all sounds, uh, some people might think of this as just a little new agey, you know. What is the hard science behind it all?
4: Well, you know, as you just work through all of the different senses as they relate to water, uh, you can unpack the science. So listening to the sound, well, that obviously connects to our brains through our ears. Looking at the water, or that connects to our brains mm-hmm. through our eyes. Being in the water, that that brings in you know, the, the feeling of gravity and the parts of our brains that work on balance and keeping us upright and keeping well, us uh, yeah. stable. So, and it's clear can, stress, stress is a killer and, and water decreases stress. Yeah. And the physiology of stress is very, very well studied these days. 20 years ago to say that stress will make you sick. Well, that, that might have been kind of a new idea, right. <laughs> but now every medical practitioner on the planet. Understands that to be true. How is how is water therapy uh, factored in with uh, PTSD uh,
0: concerns when soldiers come home from Iraq, for instance?
4: I try not. I try to be careful. I don't promote blue mind therapy or water therapy as a silver bullet solution to anything. But what we've experienced with returning veterans and soldiers has been pretty pretty amazing. For some people. Hmm. It's really like medicine. It really gives them a new lease on life. It helps them relax. I know some men who got their, their first full night of sleep after spending time in the ocean learning to surf, uh, since they returned from active duty years prior. And so the gift of sleep, imagine that just mm. finally being able to, yes. to sleep well to the sound of the ocean, to have that, that exhausted, wonderful blue mind feeling. Uh, in bed at night and just to fall asleep for the first time uh, in two years is quite an amazing thing. What a blessing. Water would be in that regard. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We've been speaking with Wallace J. Nichols, and
0: uh, Jay has written a book, a fascinating book called Blue Mind, talking about the importance of water just as we reset ourselves to maintain balance in our aggressive dog-eat-dog, rat race kind of world that a lot of us fall into. Jay, you you wrote about a couple of concepts that just really resonated with me. You said, we fall more in love with each other at the shore. I think a lot of people can relate to that. I can. (laughs) And then it's always ourselves that we find in the sea. Let's just wrap it up with a a bit of, where did those ideas come from?
4: You know, there are scientists who study the science of awe. Uh, There's a guy named Paul Piff at UC Berkeley. I call him Dr. Awesome, but he studies the science of awe. And what they've found is that when we experience awe, whether it's from seeing a beautiful wild animal or a sunset over an ocean or floating down a river, it switches us from a, a me orientation to a we orientation. It changes our brains in a way that increases our empathy and boosts our compassion, connects us to those that we're with, and connects us to the world around us. And I know that sounds really touchy-feely, But there's a biological basis to it, to that feeling. Of course there is. It doesn't just come from nowhere. It comes from within our brains. And empathy is good. Compassion is good. And if if healthy water can be just another source of that kind of feeling of being connected to ourselves, to those that we're with, those that we love, and the world around us, then that's a good thing. Mm. Jay, it's been so much fun talking to you. with you. I think I might even be getting a little bit of blue mind thinking about all this
0: water. Just the thought of the beauty and, and the importance of, of going to the shore.
4: Yeah, I get my blue mind just talking about it, so I'm with you right there. Yeah, it's like if you want to find yourself, or even if you want somebody else to find yourself, find each other, we can all go to the shore.
0: Wallace, Jay Nichols, thanks so much, and best wishes with your book, Blue Mind. Thank you very much. Enjoyed it. Travel with Rick Steves is produced at Rick Steves Europe in Edmonds, Washington. I'm your producer, Tim Tatton, and our team includes Isaac kaplan Wulner, and Kazmira Hall. Amara Kipnikone uploads the show to our website. Sheila Gerzoff handles affiliate relations. And our theme music is by Jerry Frank. Share an impression or a surprise from your travels with us in the form of a haiku poem. We might even read it on the air someday. There's a form to submit yours on the radio page of our website at ricksteves.com radio. And we'll look for you again next week with more Travel with Rick Steves. Hey, I'm Rick Steves, and I love art. And in my new book, Europe's Top 100 Masterpieces, I share my favorites with gorgeous photos and vivid descriptions. It's all in Europe's Top 100 Masterpieces, Art for the Traveler. It's available now at ricksteves.com.